Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Going Up Cast, your weekly feel-good podcast. Where this week we talk about Burp. We talk about Bo Burnham's latest comedy special. We talk about what goes on behind the curtains here over at Going Up Cast and why I've been doing a lot of movie reviews. We talk about the latest Pixar movie and a brand new D&D video game before wrapping it all up with Critical Role Talk. That's right, we got some ground to cover in this week's episode. I know I stumbled over my words a little bit, but hey, it's me. I do that. I, I, will, I will fuck up words and stuff like that all the goddamn time, and I'll just leave them right in there. Uh, but yeah, we talk about Inside uh, and my thoughts and musings on that, and then we do a little bit of a behind-the-curtain uh, discussion where I just kind of lay out my creative process and stuff like that. Um, been doing a lot of thinking and a lot of like introspection on the type of stuff I make, and so we talk about that for an extended period of time. We talk about Luca, uh, the newest Pixar movie, which I absolutely loved. Uh, we talk about Dark Alliance, the latest game to come out of Wizards of the Coast and Dungeons and Dragons. And finally, we talk about the end of season two of Critical Role and Exandria Unlimited, as well as what season three is, you know, maybe possibly gonna look like a little bit. I don't get into like character predictions and stuff like that. I just meant more from like a, a fandom perspective. Um, now that I've spoiled the entire podcast, let me now direct you all to the Patreon, where if you enjoy me spoiling your podcasts so you don't have to sit around for an hour and a half or hour long podcasts are, you can go to goingupcast or patreon.com forward slash goingupcast. Jesus, I haven't done this in a while. And become a $5 patron where you get access to exclusive Let's Plays, movie commentary tracks, all sorts of fun stuff over there that you can enjoy on the Patreon. Um, and much like I'm doing with anything I make, I'm trying to make more stuff for Patreon, um, and just make it more updated. Um, and in case you are a big fan of the audiobooks, uh, the best places to find out when new chapters get uploaded, facebook.com slash goingupcast. I always post on there when a new chapter goes live, or you can follow me at Twitter. At, um, I believe my current handle for Twitter is at Margincor, M-A-R-G-I-N-K-O-R. I'm now posting them on Twitter as well, and I need to update my Twitter so that it is actually reflective of the Going Upcast and not the other way around. I do have a Twitter handle called at Going Upcast, but I stopped using that one for whatever reason. Um, so just don't even, don't even worry about that. We're going to use the, uh, we're going to use the other one, um, because it's, uh, more established. And, uh, Yeah. Audiobook of the day right now is The Subtle Knife, the second book in the His Dark Materials series. That's going to wrap up here pretty soon, and then we're going to dive right into the Amber Spyglass immediately afterwards uh, and round out the His Dark Materials series. But that's enough of me blathering. Let's get into this episode. Back in 2008, when I was a young fucking lad, a friend of mine at the time, um, I don't know why I need to specify that, but a friend of mine at the time showed me a video called I'm Boyo. And it was the fledgling beginnings of Bo Burnham, who I hadn't really seen since. Um, I enjoyed Boyo. I thought that was a fun song. It's very clever. Uh, and then I don't, I don't know. I just like, in all of the intervening years, you know, oh, Bo Burnham especially came out. And I was just like, meh. Meh. Shrug my shoulders. Just give it a skip. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, this son of a bitch comes out with a new special. It's called Inside. And no, it's not that game from that team that made Limbo, which I'm pretty sure is also called Inside. It was a, I mean, air quotes, comedy special. Oh, hold on. Someone's giving me a phone call. Anyway, yeah, calling it a comedy special, I think, is a misnomer because while there were very few pieces of it that I thought were actually funny, I feel like the the true purpose and uh, effect of this special was not for a comedic nature. Uh, Inside, to me, is much more serious. Um, it deals with topics of like mental illness, uh, isolationism, uh, just really heavy stuff. And I don't really want to like, I'm torn because a, it's been out for a little bit. Um, but let's just talk about it. So 
He filmed it over the course of a year, and of course, what a year to film such a special, because it was the it was the pandemic. You can see his hair and beard grow throughout the special as time literally passes, uh, and it is a a gorgeous piece of performance art. And of course, the inside has double meaning because not only is he trapped inside one room for the entire special, but he's also trapped inside his own head um, because of, you know, being alone. Um, But it's like essays could be written about this special, about the, the way the story is told, the way things are shot, the lighting that was used, how Bo activated different effects like in the middle of performances and stuff like that it's it's incredibly well done it's superbly well done i can only imagine like how many takes and all of these things and how uh, meticulously choreographed the whole fucking special is like nothing in this special is done by accident you know everything was done exactly how Bo wanted it to be done he had all of the time in the world to make this his his ultimate vision and i think he excelled it's one of those things where it's like i don't think i need to see it again but i think everyone should see it i think it's it's like this it's the single best piece of media to represent what 2020 and the covid-19 pandemic was like i think for for a lot of us um this this new this new brave new world of sealed inside your house um and just dealing with the fact that you're alone and you can't see or interact with anybody and you're just in there um and for Bo it was you know according to the special there was trauma too for because he stopped performing for five years because of panic attacks and so he was working on his mental health um, for five years in that time and you learn this in the special um, as far as my takeaways from the special go there were two songs in that special I listened to on their own because they're legitimately amazing songs and it's All Eyes on Me and Welcome to the Internet those are the, those are the two songs that I really loved from that special that funny feeling I think is it deserves honorable mention uh, but I won't listen to it on its own because it's a little too like all Eyes on Me, I think, is just beautiful in its own way. Welcome to the Internet is just catchy. That funny feeling is, like, way too fucking hard um, in terms of how on point it is. And I'm just like, no, nah, I can't. Like, I love it. I love the message. You did a great job here. Can't listen to that song. Um, it's, 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 it's too on point. So, I mean, it's, it's a weird thing. I've never really quite seen anything like it. The, the closest thing I can think of, and it's just because of how, like, different it is from everything else that I've ever seen in this medium, is Pink Floyd movie The Wall. The Wall is a bizarre film. As, uh, that, the Wall is to movies as inside is to comedy specials. They, they elevate the fucking medium to this whole other plane of existence leaving the viewer like scratching their head and thinking about it forever. It's like Brave New World. Shit like this clings to your ribs. Like I haven't gone a day since I saw a special without thinking about it and I saw it like three weeks ago. And I'm just like, I just think about it. I think about the ending. Like, is he, is he happy? is is it kind of torturous like it's it's left fairly ambiguous from my perspective um and things that i feel like were supposed to be triumphant came off more like i need to laugh here because the viewer expects me to laugh and he feels like it's, he's backed in a corner or something like that um it's it's really it's really something else so if you're interested in seeing like, I, I think the greatest word to, to, to describe it is to just call it art. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a whole other thing 
You know, it's not a comedy special. It goes beyond that. It'll make you fucking think. And some of the songs are really good. It's just so beautifully done. You know? It doesn't even... You don't you don't rate shit like this. This transcends ratings. It's just like, go watch it. You know what? That's, that's the best review you can give anything, right? Everybody should see this. So if you haven't seen Bo Burnham's Inside, even if you don't know anything about Bo Burnham, it's fine. But you gotta watch this thing. It's gonna fucking... It's gonna get you. I guarantee it. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. This one's gonna be a, a quick peek behind the scenes. Um, you may have noticed in the past many weeks, I've done a lot of movie reviews. And that was because reviewing movies was easier than doing literally anything else for the podcast. And I will be perfectly honest with you, my creative drive for the podcast more or less burnt out like three months ago. That's why I was doing these movie reviews. Um, because it was easy and it, it just kind of, it gave me a, it gave me a plan. It gave me a focus. I just watched a shit ton of movies and then talked crap about them for the podcast. And it was, I could crank that out and I could do that forever. But that what that was never the point of the podcast. You know, I love reviewing movies. Don't get me wrong. I'll review anything. I'm, I'm a fan of that. That's, that's, that's not a problem for me. But that wasn't the point of this podcast. And for me, when I make things, whether it's videos on YouTube, um, Dungeons and Dragons campaigns, audiobooks, podcasts, whatever, they have to be creatively fulfilling. Otherwise, what's the point? That's what I ran into with YouTube videos. I made over 2,000 YouTube videos. Think about that. Really think about that. That's an absurd amount of videos. And these weren't short videos. I think on average, my videos were about 30 minutes each. It was an unreasonable amount of time making YouTube videos. And I, early on, like, wasn't even something I encountered in, like, the talent. Pretty much, like, once I really started doing it and coming out with, like, at least a video a day, it just became about quantity. Quality was not a thing after a certain point for YouTube videos. You were just cranking them out to get something online. And so the creative fulfillment of that was like fucking net gain zero from like day one. I just needed to make things. Because that was my strategy to be a big internet star, right? If you just flood the internet with your shit, something will stick. It's not how it works. People, in my experience, will take quality over quantity any fucking time. One of my favorite YouTube channels is June's Kitchen. J-U-N-S Kitchen. Dude's got like maybe 20 videos on his channel. And he's been making videos for years. But each time a video comes out, it's like meticulously made and it's really beautiful. And he, it's really quaint and I love it. So, I mean, yeah, quantity over quality, I think. people People's time is finite. And if you ask them to, like, you know, consume a 115-episode series, they're not going to go back and watch that shit from the start. They're going to wait for you to start something new. And so that was a logic I had, too. At one point, I had something like five ongoing series of different games, of different genres, thinking, like, there's something for everyone here. It was a terrible way of making content. If I wrote books the way I made YouTube videos, god damn, it would be an unreasonable amount of really shitty books. And so I've been doing a lot of thinking about this podcast and what I want to do with it, where I want to go with it. Do I want to keep going? Do I want to stop? And at the end of the day, I determined that I had enough content um, for another episode because it's been a long time since I've done uh, an actual episode. Um, and so I decided to, to make this one, the one you're listening to right now. And we'll, we'll do this episode and then next week we'll roll around and 
We'll see. I mean, that's the thing, right? I was inspired to make this episode of the podcast. I don't know if I'm going to have enough interesting, worthwhile things to talk about next week for the podcast. It is a complete crapshoot. There are things coming down the pipeline um, in terms of things I personally care about and think are exciting in the universe that I want to discuss on this platform. Um, One of those things is, surprise, surprise, Critical Role. Season 2 just wrapped up. Um... And in fact, we're going to talk about that a little later on in this podcast, but I would love to do like updates on like now that I'm caught up, that could be a part of each week's podcast is just a little bit probably at the end, you know, because not everybody watches Critical Role, Um, but I could do, you know, little blurbs and recap episodes and stuff like that. I could do that and provide my, my own insights on how it's going and stuff like that. That's a that's a segment I can do. But for me, if if you want to turn to something that I find incredibly creatively fulfilling, it's the audiobooks, man. I would drop the podcast in a second to to do the audiobooks more. I mean, I do the audiobooks pretty much as much as I possibly can at this moment in time. Um and I'm never going to do more than one book at a time. At least uploading it. I'm reading several books at the same time for audiobooks, but for the sake of like, it's like a chapter a day, I think is good for my own sanity, if nothing else. Because at least with that, right? Worst case scenario, I record a chapter same day. And full disclosure, that did happen a couple of times fairly recently with Howl's Moving Castle. I thought I had more time when I didn't. And there were at least two chapters that I can think of off the top of my head that were recorded and instantly uploaded. So, in some cases, it's the, the actual uh, time dilation is is almost negligible. Um, but I fucking, I love the audiobooks. Because what I love about the audiobooks is it's it's almost, it's almost the same thing with the YouTube strategy, right? But it's different. Because... While it's unreasonable to ask somebody to watch like a 60 episode series about a game they may or may not care about. With audiobooks, right, there's there is like natural reconsumption built into an audiobook. Because books, if you really like a book, chances are you're probably gonna read that book more than once. And while the jokes might not hit as strong the second time, I'd be willing to bet that it would probably take a couple of listen-throughs of any of my audiobooks before the jokes became stale. Because fucking, I my I am my own biggest fan. Full disclosure, I fall asleep listening to my own audiobooks. This goes way back to like middle school when I would fall asleep listening to actual audiobooks. I've been listening to audiobooks forever. If you've listened to like Harry Potter 1, you'll know that my grandmother made me custom audiobooks that she read when I was a child, and I still have those. So, you could argue that narrating audiobooks kind of runs in my blood. Skipped my parents' generation, but it fucking found a home in me. And, you know, all, all this shit with Audible and I mean, there's even audiobooks on Spotify now. They're all fucking, you know, public domain garbage books. You know, who wants to listen to me read, you know, the fucking Ruby, Ruby Yacht of Omar Khmer? I'm going to do an audiobook of that. Woo! Thousand listeners. You know. And not to, not to, disp- like, you can listen to audiobooks however you want. If you want to listen to some fucking old person snootily read you a book slowly then you have plenty of options but what what I offer I can't find anywhere else not that I'm really looking because last thing I want are competitors um but I don't know for me just having this catalog of audiobooks completed audiobooks I'm on my 26th audiobook the one I'm reading right now that started last week, right? The Subtle Knife. That is book 26. 
that blows my mind that I have read 26 full audiobooks. That's a lot. That's a lot. I don't know what the world record is. I'm guessing it's in the hundreds. You know, like Jim Dale or somebody just read books for like 40 years. You know, I'm probably never going to get to that point. Um, and it also surprised me how few I can come out with in like a year. You know, they they take, you know, a chapter a day, depending on the length of the book. Like Lord of the Rings, if I ever, well, the problem with Lord of the Rings is it actually doesn't have that many chapters. They're just enormous. So when I do get to Lord of the Rings, and it is coming, it's going to take not a lot of time. I think once those chapters actually start going up, it's going to take me forever because the chapters are enormous. But when when I actually start getting those chapters up, I think Lord of the Rings will will come and go pretty fucking quickly, um, and hopefully be be popular. Um, one service that I I think I offer is I can help make books more accessible. You know, um, cause some books are intimidating and some things go over your head. Um, like one of the books I'm reading on the side is, I'll, I'll just tell you, is Dante's Inferno. And my plan with that one is to just drop it all at once. Um, but the service I'm trying to provide with that one is Dante's Inferno is fucking, you, you almost need commentary and in, in my co- version of my physical copy of Dante's Inferno, it does just straight up have passages and annotations telling you what the fuck Dante's talking about in the Inferno. Um, and you kind of need that to, to dissect it. And I'm just doing it in an audiobook form. I'm just, I'm just delivering it in a, in a casual, consumable way to help, you know, high school kids understand what Dante's talking about. And how Dante's basically just a thirsty self-insert fan, fanboy of poets... Uh, and that's basically it. Most of the people Dante shits on in the books are people that Dante personally had, like, issues with. You know? It's, it's so fucking biased because it's his advantage. Like, there are some people that are only famous because they appear in Dante's Inferno. People who never would have made it through the annals of history, but we care about them because they're in Dante's Inferno. And the reality is, those people probably don't matter one fucking bit. But because they're in Dante's Inferno, and because they pushed Dante in the sand when he was like six years old, and then he was like, you know what, fuck you, I'm gonna write you about how you're in hell for being an asshole. And then now there's Wikipedia pages about these assholes. Just because Dante thought they were dicks once. That's Dante's Inferno. That's it. I mean, sometimes the, the author writes that the sky is blue... Because the sky is fucking blue. Sometimes it is just black and goddamn white. That was one of my... I'm going on so many tangents. But that was one of my least favorite things about reading books in school. What's the... What do you think the deeper meaning is here? What do you think the author is trying to imply by saying that the house has dandelions in the front yard? Maybe the author just wanted dandelions in the front yard. And maybe it isn't symbolic of the fucking geopolitical structure of their like whole ecosphere in the 1800s you know and sometimes it is a deeper meaning and that's fine and that's beauty of art is that you can interpret on any fucking level I just got done talking about Bo Burnham's Inside Out and that's riddled with symbolism or he could have just filmed it that way and there was no deeper meaning which is nonsense that thing is full of deeper meaning um but, you know, sometimes in books, you just can't help but be like, I think Nathaniel Hawthorne was just a shitty writer. Do you ever think about that? So, this is a long, massive tangent to basically say this. I'm not going to end the podcast, but there may be weeks where there is no podcast. I basically only want to make this particular piece of media when there is stuff worth talking about. There may be weeks when the podcast is like 20 minutes long. That's kind of where my head is at now. Shooting for an hour was one of those arbitrary guidelines. I was like, it's, you know, it's usually an hour. We'll just always shoot for that. And if your podcast does that, more power to you. But I'm going to make the podcast as long or as short as it needs to be to fit whatever I want to talk about that week. Some weeks there might not be one. Some weeks they might be. 
but for right now, it will it will maintain. It's just going to go for quality over quantity. And the audiobooks are the exact opposite because I feel like I get quality every fucking time. Uh, except for 20,000 Leagues Under a Sea. If there's one book I regret reading, it's that one. I don't regret finishing it. I regret starting it. That book fucking sucks. And I will fight anybody on that. You come at me being like, Jules Verne is a classic. I'm never touching another Jules Verne book. If, if I have my if I have my way, you know, who knows? If, like, down the future, everybody's like, you gotta read Journey to the Center of the Earth, or whatever. I'll fucking, I'll fucking pick it up. You want, you want me to try it one more time? I'd give him another chance. Maybe you got better with age. I doubt it, but maybe. Anyway. <sighs> yeah, it, I, that's been on my mind for a while. It's nice to get it off my chest. Um, so... Thank you all for letting me do that. Uh, but that is enough of this behind the scenes. I'm now going to close the curtain once again. And we're going to move on to the next thing of the podcast. Pixar's latest visionary masterpiece. Well, masterpiece might be a bit of a strong word. Luca is out on Disney+. And I really enjoyed this movie. Um, I didn't go in with many big expectations. I, I went in being like, it looks like... If Pixar did a Studio Ghibli movie, that's that was basically all I knew about it. And it's very clear um, when there's elements from different things kind of thrown in this movie. Like Little Mermaid, Charlie Brown, Studio Ghibli, Wallace and Gromit. Like, very strong visual and story elements pulled from all sorts of different things thrown together in this Mediterranean mermaid movie. Basically, it's really good. It didn't make me cry. It made me laugh a lot. Um, I think I think it's like out of out of the three Disney Plus movies that Pixar has made, Onward, Soul, and Luca. Soul is the best one so far, but I would rather see Luca than any of the other ones. Like objectively, Soul is a superior film. But I like Luca personally. It, it hits more notes for me. The acting in this movie is actually really good. The two leads, Luca and Alfonso, I believe his name was, um, are amazing. You've got the, the one-armed dad character with his cat, which is so fucking Studio Ghibli, it's not even funny. Both of those characters are so fucking Studio Ghibli, it's, it's kind of insane. Um, the, uh, the little girl character, uh, Julia, is fantastic you know right there in that like studio ghibli uh archetype of like strong young female characters that's a big studio ghibli trope and they do it really well here the story itself is really small in scope it's a very simple story in fact i'm gonna tell you the story right now so you've got luca who's the little mermaid boy who lives in the mediterranean sea um and uh, eventually he runs into this other fish boy who spends a lot of time on the surface and of course they have like you know we're we're you know like fucking summer fun adventures of just two boys just hanging around and that's all really fucking charming and gorgeous um and i love that um and quick side note it really is left fairly ambiguous the nature of their relationship i i like you could easily write it off like oh they're just best friends but there could also be, like, you know, some something deeper there. There could be, like, the hints of it. And, the it, you know, they, it doesn't really say one way or the other, but they are very close. Let's put it that way. Like, that's that can't be argued with. They are very close, um, and they, they, like, care very much about each other. We'll just leave it at that. Um, but, yeah, in the beginning, they're just like, you know, we're going to get a Vespa. Like, they, they focus a lot about getting a Vespa. And I've never really thought this for any other movie that Pixar has made, but this one in particular kind of felt more offensive to Italian culture than representative of Italian culture. Like, to me, having like... I mean, maybe that's kind of the point, because they're literally fish out of water in this movie and so they don't know too much about like the local culture and stuff like that 
But a main, the, like the main goal of these two boys is to get a Vespa, which is like one of the most iconically Italian things that you can think of outside of food. And speaking of food, Julia will say fairly often, like, like almost as like, like, oh my god, like as an exasperation, she'll go like, Saint la mozzarella or something like that. And I'm like, are you literally just saying Saint cheese? And she says it with, like, different kinds of cheese throughout the movie. So she might, uh, from my point of view, you know, she might as well be going, like, pizza pasta. Hey, you know, it's just, it just felt fairly offensive to the Italian stereotype. I don't know if it is. I don't know much about Italian culture. You know, I know I love the food. That's my extent of it. So I'm by far, far from an expert. But... I, as a nerd, was offended by the inclusion of nerd shit in Onward because I didn't think it did a really good job of representing that, you know? Like, with the, with the inclusion of literal things from Dungeons and & Dragons and, like, that whole side of it, I didn't feel like it was done particularly well in that film, at least not from my perspective. It felt more like a stereotype of what those things would be. And I feel like I'm getting the same thing here. Coco felt... Properly representative, you know? I mean, there are definitely some things that you can look at as, like, tropes, but I, I didn't feel about Coco the way I do about, about like, Luca and how it feels more stereotypical. And, you know, you get it in, like, the whole, like, Silencio Bruno and, and all of, like, the... Yeah, and, like, and I know that's, like, people do sound like that. That's all legitimate, you know? But it, I don't know. It's just... It comes off, and I'm thinking about it, and it seems offensive, and I'm not sure if it is. If nobody's actually offended, then I suppose it's not a problem, but that's just my perspective. Um, but anyway, their goal is to get a Vespa, and they find out that they can win prize money from this triathlon race where it is swimming for a little bit, eating a plate of pasta, and then biking up and down a hill. Honestly, it looks like one of the easiest fucking triathlons you could come up with, because they barely swim out. It's one plate of pasta. Although I hope there's like some fucking oil or butter on it because it's literally just plain pasta. But it needs some like it needs something else. Like if it's tossed in oil, then I'm I'm golden. Like fucking give it to me. Maybe a little bit of salt. Fucking mwah. It'd be beautiful. Um And then yeah, they bike up a hill and then kind of ride the hill back down. And there's a bully character in this movie, um, who's kind of a shit. But he's supposed to be a shit. Um, he also has like a shitty little mustache. Um, but honestly, it's not... It's not a movie where the antagonist is like important. You know, you can just... He, you could, he, could, he could not be in the movie. And it'd still be fine. Like, and the... You know, he gets his comeuppance later on and that's all well and good. Um, but for me, it's really about the three characters. And it's a really good movie about interpersonal relationships and children and summer and you know the the joy is of adventure and danger and meeting new people and like the family you find along the way and stuff like that and finding like what drives you from like a passion point of view and it's it's really really well done i love this movie it's it's rapidly become one of my favorite pixar movies because of how sweet and slice of life it is. How gorgeously animated it is. It's it's a fun stylistic thing. What they've done with like the people and some of the facial expressions. With these very rounded edges a la Wallace and Gromit. Or even Charlie Brown. Very round shapes. Um, big floppy mustaches. You know, very Studio Ghibli inspired. There's huge artistic elements from all over the place. Um, and I'm not pulling this out of my ass. Like, it is, like, just straight up, the people who made this movie love Studio Ghibli. Like, it's, you can't, when you see one, you see the other. It's, it's so fucking clear. Um, and speaking as somebody who has watched almost every Studio Ghibli movie, I think there's, like, two I've never seen. Um, and all the ones that have been made after Studio Ghibli movie, or Studio Ghibli kind of stopped making movies. So we're talking about, like, uh, Mary and the Witch's Flower, and then Hedwig and the whatever the fuck. The, the witch one, that one fucking sucks. Um, and even the Red Turtle. This is the best non-Studio Ghibli movie, Studio Ghibli movie I've ever seen. 
If you're ever like, I love these movies. I wish there was another one I could watch. Luca. Luca is your your next go-to, not a Studio Ghibli movie, Studio Ghibli movie. It checks so many of the same boxes. Um, and I, I love it for that. Because Studio Ghibli makes good fucking movies. And this is a good fucking movie. I mean, we're talking 9 out of 10. Easy. Easy 9 out of 10. Not perfect. They're definitely... that For me, it's the, it's the uncertainty on the potential stereotypic nature of the film. Um... Actually, I don't think it's been... It is stereotypical um, of Italian culture. If it's accurately representative of Italian culture, I'm not sure. Because, again, I don't know. But if I were to list out Italian stereotypes, like, this this movie has a lot of them. And so by, you know, by default... Now, a stereotype doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. You know? Like, if you were to say Americans are proud to be Americans. That's a stereotype of Americans, but whether or not that's a bad thing, you know, that's up to interpretation. People taking it to an extreme, for sure. But if you're just like, yeah, you know what, America's all right. Um, or I'm, I like some of the things America's done, you know, the, you know it, it very much depends. There's a lot of shit that America's done that fucking blows and was horrible and awful. But then there's also some nice things, you know? Pros and cons. You got, you got, there's, there's, Good and bad and everything. But there's a lot of stereotypes. And, I mean... I don't know how you... I mean, I'm trying to think of like how to, how to phrase this. But in order to make a movie like accessible to people outside of that culture, you kind of have to rely on hallmarks that people know of that culture... Although, I suppose they could have gotten away with it in this film, because Luca being a literal fish out of water and not knowing anything about the human world could have allowed for us to experience this culture in a less stereotypical fashion, and we would have been introduced to it through Luca's eyes. So, that could have been that could have been the thing as well. Music was really good. The animation was absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it's Pixar. Um, the like One of my major complaints with this is... Disney has the, the fucking gall to release this movie for free and charge us $30 for Cruella, which by all accounts is a shittier movie. Like, don't, I love that these movies are on Disney Plus for free. I think all of Disney's new movies should be on Disney Plus for free. But at the same time, I'm like, if you're going to just release Pixar movies, which are historically some of the best Disney movies that Disney's ever made onto your service for free. Why are you charging me money for a mo- like for Cruella? I just I don't I don't get that. Cruella looks like trash compared to Luca. Like I just I don't get that at all. Not not at all. I don't I don't understand you. Um, what is the next Pixar movie that they're working on? Because I don't, I don't actually know. I'm usually aware of what the next fucking Pixar movie is going to be. Uh, apparently it's called Turning Red. Um, it is being directed by uh, Domi Shi, uh, who has been a storyboard artist. Okay, Turning Red. Oh, and then there's the fucking Lightyear one, but that one's later. I don't know anything about Turning Red, but apparently it comes out March of next year. What the fuck is Turning Red? Hmm. What odd? Oh, it's the it's the fucking panda. It's the red panda movie. That's right. It's the big dumb red panda movie. What is this about? Follows May Lee, a confident yet dorky thirteen-year-old girl torn between staying her mother's dutiful daughter and the chaos of adolescence that's plagued us all. Uh, Pete Doctor shared, as if changes to May's interests, relationships, and body weren't enough, whenever she gets too excited, which for teenagers practically always, she poofs into a giant red panda. I mean, on paper, it sounds stupid. And Pixar has missed a few beats every, every now and then. I mean, they're not flawless. I'm looking at you, Bugs Life. 
Finding Dory. I mean, those movies are fine, but they're not as good as some of their other ones. That's kind of that's kind of the point I'm trying to make here. But Luca's great. Nine out of ten. Please go watch it. It's amazing. And let's move on to the next thing in podcast. D and D is wonderful, but they came out with a fucking new video game called Dark Alliance: Dungeons and Dragons Dark Alliance, and it's all about D and D's history and. This shouldn't come as a surprise. But D&D has, like, characters and settings and worlds and stuff like that that have been kind of around since the dawn of Dungeons and & Dragons. And some characters are more infamous than others. None of this is familiar to me. My, my exposure to D&D is primarily as a game system, right? And I don't know anything about, like, the internal lore of Dungeons & Dragons or, like, any of these characters, like, Dritzt or whatever the fuck his name is or Bruno, Bruno Hold the Dwarf or... I don't know. I don't know these characters. But they're characters that have been established in the D&D lore for a very long time. Anyway, in this game, Dark Alliance, you can play as one of four of these supposedly iconic D&D characters and you travel through D&D zones that you can experience in, like, some of their campaign guides, like Icewind Dale... Um, and you go up against some, some air quotes, iconic enemies that have existed in this D&D world. Basically, it's, if you know deep D&D lore, because that's, that was weird. Um, because that's what I would call it, like deep D&D lore. Um, then you would be fine in, in understanding who these characters are and what these world settings are and blah, 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 whatever. Uh, but I didn't, so... I wasn't able to appreciate the game on, on that front. Um, graphically, it is functional at times. The game's not great. Um, and it's not like it's complete and bad. It's It's got some bugs. And it's got some frame rate issues. And the combat kind of sucks, which is bad. Because that's the entire game. Like, you you enter into the, 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 the mission, right? And you basically just go from point A to point B following your little marker. Um, there's very little D&D about it. And the game kind of comes off bizarrely in a lot of different ways. Like, there are a lot of classes in D&D. Over ten. Yet, for these four characters, two of them are fighters. One is a rogue, and the other one is a barbarian, which is a fancy fighter. They're all martial classes. Like, so it's, you know, you get up there and you punch them. <coughs> so there's no magic in any of these characters, which is... Or there's not a lot of magic in any of these characters, which is not great. Um, but yeah, like, uh, the game is built around fighting goblins and enemies and trolls and ogres and all that shit. Um, so combat's a really big part of this game. And the combat just sucks. There's rubber banding of enemies, which is basically when they, they fucking snap from location to location without any, like, movement being shown through. And it's because of the lag of the game. Um, whenever I, so I played the, the archer, who, his name was, like, Caddy Bree or something like that. Anytime I use, like, my super big arcane arrow things, those arrows moved at, like, one frame a second. They fucking sucked. Um, also, as a fighter archer, my arrows did more damage if I was, like, right the fuck next to them. Which doesn't compute with the archer class. You think you'd do more damage, like, getting the headshots from a distance, but I'd only get, like, 90 points of damage for that. And if I'm, like, right in front of them, I get, like, 300. So I didn't get that at all. The exploration's kind of fun. Um, and that's the only part of the game I did enjoy was exploring, but it didn't really seem to matter when you explored. You would just get some, like, you basically get like a fucking IOU coupon and you just equip it back in like the hub world. You know, it'd be like, you found a common helm, but it doesn't tell you what kind of helm you found, nor can you equip it in the fucking dungeon. You have to do that back at the fucking base. You can't do it in, in the fucking zone. Um, and I didn't like that a whole lot. And there's also, like... I know there is a story, but it's kind of like Dark Souls, where 
unless you really like look for it you can miss it super easily um and i just had no i didn't care about what i was doing or i didn't know why i was doing it or where i was or who i was fighting or any of that i was just kind of there going through the motions of bad guy kill it you know um it just it didn't feel like a D&D game it felt like they got the license and then just made like a really generic kind of explorey shoot 'em up sort of deal with co-op um which uh immediately crashed after we completed the first mission so yeah it's got problems and it's a bummer because i mean tabletop stuff dungeons and dragons magic the gathering board games card games all that shit has never been more popular than it is right now in the cultural zeitgeist and it really does feel like this was like a cash grab um it wasn't a full price game on launch it was only 50 dollars rather than 60 dollars um and it kind of and it feels like they knew that you know the game wasn't great but they they're trying to get as much money from the D&D nerds for this relatively bad game as possible. So I can't recommend it. Um, if you want a good D&D game, I would recommend Baldur's Gate 3. Uh, it's still in early access and they're still like doing stuff with it, but there's something about that game that I just absolutely love. Um, and it's something that I very much intend on playing more of. So that would be my recommendation. If you're if you're looking for for a game like that, that's where I would go. Let's move on to the next thing the podcast. And finally, this week we're going to talk about exactly what I said I was going to talk about, which is Critical Role, where a bunch of nerdy ass voice actors sit around and play Dungeons and Dragons. Season two, the Mighty Nine arc of Critical Role has come to a close, and I fucking loved it. Um, the seven-hour finale, the series wrap-up, the one-shot, Mighty Nine versus Vox Machina, all fantastic. I'm not going to talk about it in terms of content, because, you know, it's, it's now finished. All 141 episodes of that show are available for you to consume. And, um, hey, you know what? I recommend you do. But if you're, if you're like a, you know, a person, and you're like, I don't have a thousand hours of free time to just witness Critical Role Season 2. I wish there was something more consumable. Something that didn't have such a high barrier of entry. Something I could just kind of hop into. Well, your prayers have been answered. Because this past week was the start of Exandria Unlimited. Which is a new eight episode miniseries of a campaign. That's it. Eight episodes. Each episode's still going to be somewhere between three and five hours long. But there's only eight of them. And there's only ever going to be eight of them as far as we know. Maybe if the fan reaction to this is really great, they'll do more of it. But pretty sure right now the game plan is to just do eight. So if you've been waiting for a new Critical Role, now's the time to jump in. And let's talk about that first episode. Because they've changed quite a few things about, you know, the cast and stuff. So, Critical Role Exandria Unlimited is being DM'd by Abria Iyengar, who has been a member of the the D&D community for many years, uh, has participated in many games on many platforms with a lot of different people. Uh, She is no stranger to the world of Dungeons & Dragons, and she's taking... She's taking the seat in what has to be one of the most, like intimidating chairs to sit in and that is to take the take the spot of Matthew Mercer um, and she does a really excellent job in uh, in this first episode of making characters and building the world and providing that narration and stuff like that um, and what I love about this show and I think it really ties in with the Bria here is that it really this whole new little miniseries smacks of a brand new D&D party Brand new campaign, brand new party, brand new DM. Like it just—it feels like the start of a of a new game. When Critical Role season two started, it it felt like they were just like getting to know their characters. But the players have been playing for so long that the dynamics of their interactions were already pretty well established. 
But if you want a good visual representation of what it's like to roll up and play D&D for like the first fucking time with a bunch of newbies, Exandria Unlimited is pretty fucking close. Now I know Matt Mercer and Liam O'Brien are players in this game. Um, and both of them have probably something like 20 to 40 to 50 years of Dungeons and Dragons experience between them. Um, but they still feel like new players, uh, to me. And I know Ashley's been playing a member, as a member of the Critical Role cast since its inception, but... You know, she, she's not, she's been, you know, fickle. Uh, you know, wasn't around a whole lot in season two for, for the blind spot and... Stuff like that, so I think I think Ashley still got still got a ways to go when it comes to learning this game, and he never really finished learning D and D. You know, it's just it's one of those ongoing things. Um, but Abria, I think, is doing an excellent job. Amy Carrero, uh, a fantastic uh, voice actor, probably the thing I know them best from is performing as She-Ra uh, in She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, which is a absolutely phenomenal Netflix show that I highly recommend. Um, but she is incredibly fun in her own right. Uh, she brings us the warlock, uh, Hexblade warlock character known as Opal, who is human, I'm pretty sure. Um, but they're just, they're just a fabulous character. I love all of these characters in this, in this show, which was not true for the Mighty Nine when it first started. Um, but I'm older and wiser and a lot more accepting to change now. So Amy is fitting in beautifully. Robbie Damon, uh, probably the one I knew the least amount about like going into this um but they provide the voice for spider-man and quite a few things and then a shit ton of anime uh tuxedo mask and uh from sailor moon and just so on and so forth um he has a character whose name i don't remember um but it is an Aragonasi bard um probably some sort of high brow noble situation going on there full disclosure i haven't finished episode one yet I'm like an hour away from it, um, but I wanted to talk about this before the uh, before Tuesday because obviously that's when the podcast goes up. So there you go. Uh, but Robbie fits in well, brings in a lot of like cool dad energy. Uh, Matthew Mercer, of course, the iconic DM of Critical Role. Uh, it is thrilling to see him in the player seat on a on a more substantial basis. Matt's played in as a player in a few one shots. Um, but not for a long time. Uh, I'm pretty sure the last one was The Night Before Christmas, which is an iconic Christmas-themed one-shot with, like, elves and Santa and shit. And if you haven't seen that, you gotta fucking watch that. It's like a Christmas staple for me now as I'll sit down and watch The Night Before Christmas. You fool, Klaus. Anyway. Um, yeah, Mercer is a doll, and I fucking love him. Um, and I, I'm so thrilled that he gets to be a player in this game. Ashley Johnson, and despite her her schedule preventing her from being in, as a member of season two for very long, Yasha and Ashley are still like probably my favorite cast member. If I had to pick one, um, I fucking I fucking love Ashley. Oh wait, hold on. I think my actual favorite might be Marisha, right now. Um, I love them all. So it's like it's like picking your favorite child. It's nobody wins. Uh, but Ashley's just fantastic uh, as the. Uh, Fawn Druid Fern, which is probably my favorite character out of all of them because it's just, like, I'm all about that. Although, at the same time, while Fern is very much like my aesthetic, Little Mister, her her demon monkey, is very much not. So, you know, pros and cons, pros and cons. And finally, last but certainly not least, Liam O'Brien coming in, making me almost cry with just the fact that his character is from the Arashari. Which is just like fu- like punch right in the gut, and I'm like, you son of a bitch, you fucking knew exactly what you were doing with that shit, you bastard. Um, and in case you don't know, his first character in Vox Machina, Vax, had a romantic relationship with Keyleth, who is the leader of the Arashari, and because Keyleth got to level 20, she's basically immortal and will endure for for like a thousand years or something like that. I think it's like every hundred years for Keyleth is like. 10 years for anybody else so she's gonna be alive for like like a thousand plus years um which is great for if you're running a game in Alexandria like oh I don't know me and um you wanted to have a character from Vox Machina be around but not necessarily play it near when Vox Machina occurred you can use Keyleth in that campaign pretty much you got like a thousand years to play with there 
Um, however, I'm, my campaign is set a year after Dallin's Closet, uh, which means uh, Vex and Percy's uh, child, Vesper, is at least a year old, by, by my logic. Anyway. Yeah, um, and it seems like the scope of this game is going to be very small. Uh, primarily taking place in the city of Amon, by the sounds of it. Uh, it's going to be a sweet little story, hopefully. Um, you know, Abria will tell will tell her tale, and uh, by the time this wraps up, season three of Critical Role will be uh, going, and that lines up pretty much exactly with precedence, uh, because the gap between season one and season two of Critical Role was about three months. Um, and because of things like the one shot and the wrap up, um, and all that stuff, it's going to be about, you know, we've got seven weeks, uh, from now until the, uh, what should we jigger? Xander Unlimited is done. So it's like end of August, beginning of September, roughly around then is when we would expect to see the start of season three. So get excited for that. This, this is like, good, like Harold sent to be around for new people to critical role to ease into it because when mighty nine dropped their viewership exploded because people wanted to watch but they didn't have time to get into vox machina and now those of us who didn't have time to get into mighty nine can get into Alexandria unlimited and hey if these characters in this cast isn't your bag well then in fucking seven weeks you'll be able to watch season three of critical role live with the rest of us um and experience that joy right out the gate and I gotta tell you, there's nothing quite like that. Getting in on the ground floor, like right as it gets going, there's 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 nothing else really like it, you know? Just like that that sense of community and being able to talk to all of your critical role friends and on the discords and the reddits and theorize about what's gonna happen and put some puzzle pieces together. It's like a, it's like a fucking mystery game, you know? figuring it all out and the beauty bit is is that we'll never be able to figure it out because it's dungeons and dragons we can hypothesize we can guess we can come up with plans and backstories and all sorts of shit and the next week we'll throw all of our theories right out the fucking window because it's improv and it's dungeons and dragons with some of the best players that you can witness on a goddamn screen and doing what they do best and it's fucking awesome quick side note before we end this episode um, I am watching all of the, the update videos for The Legend of Vox Machina, the new animated show coming out to us on Amazon Prime that was kickstarted, uh, that covers, um, the events of season one, or at least it will. Um, it's going to start with a, a brand new story and then it's going to move into like the beginning of season one of Cr uh, Critical Role and then hopefully continue from there. We know we're getting at least two seasons, but they just uh, announced that the head artist, um, whose name escapes me right now, um... But, uh, here, hold on, let me, uh, lead character designer legend of Vox Machina. Uh, his name is Phil, uh, Barasa. Phil Barasa, um, is going to be the lead character designer for Legend of Vox Machina. And I know him best from Young Justice and a lot of those Batman movies I watched, including Batman Bad Blood. And his art style is fucking beautiful for Vox Machina and I think it's going to make the show even better. Like, I was already excited for the show. I backed it on Kickstarter, but I am just so fucking pumped to see this fucking thing. Uh, most likely, either end of this year or beginning of next is kind of my prediction. Um, it's probably going to be... It's probably going to be a minute, but I bet we're getting close. I bet we're getting close. Um, and speaking of getting close, I think that'll do it for this week's episode of The Going Up Cast. I hope you enjoyed it. It is... It's been fun to sit down and do a, an actual, factual episode of the podcast for you guys. I know it's been a little while, um, and I'm probably going to spend the next couple of weeks going over things that I've missed in the past, uh, like E3. I want to talk about that a little bit, and uh, some other stuff that I've that I've witnessed and haven't had the chance to really talk about. So keep your ears uh, on for that, so we can kind of cover some some lost ground. And uh, throughout this week, still more um, Southern Life is the book of the moment. It's not a very long book, so get a ready for um, the next book afterwards, The Amber Spyglass, to start up here pretty soon, probably before the month is out, would be my guess. I hope you all have a fantastic week. Stay cool out there. Summer's heating up, and I hope everybody has a wonderful day. Have a good one, everyone. <laughs>